Jambase Podcast. I'm Andy Kahn, and Jambase is a partner of Osiris Media, the podcast network for music. Osiris recently announced its first foray into fictional storytelling with Sugar Maid, a new eight-part podcast series narrated by actor Fred Savage. Each episode features a new person discovering a mysteriously rebuilt Fender Telecaster guitar called Sugar Maple, creating a song, and parting with it by strange circumstance. First episode premieres next Tuesday, March 15th. Subscribe now to Sugar Maple on your preferred podcasting platform. On this episode of the Jambase Podcast, we'll hear my interview with singer-songwriter Steve Pultz. Steve has an inviting new album out now called Stardust and Satellites, which was one of the many things that we discussed. That interview with Steve Pultz is coming right up, but first, let's hear about the sponsor of this episode. This episode is sponsored by Delfest. The 14th Annual Delfest, the beloved genre-spanning festival brainchild of McCurry Music and High Sierra Music, is pleased to announce that after a two-year hiatus due to COVID-19, the music of Del McCurry and Friends returns to beautiful Cumberland, Maryland from May 26th through the 29th. Festival hosts the Del McCurry Band and the Traveling McCurries are joined on the Delfest 2022 lineup by Railroad Earth, Bailiflex My Bluegrass Heart, Sam Bush, Tyler Childers, Robert Earl King, Leftover Salmon, the Jerry Douglas Band, Watch House, California Honey Drops, Sierra Hull, Anders Osborne and Jackie Green, Cabinet, The Little Smokies, and many more. And along with traditional stage sets by these world-class artists, attendees can again expect to see one-of-a-kind collaborations, special guest sit-ins, various tributes to Del McCurry and his musical legacy, and intimate appearances from the aforementioned artists. And don't miss the separately ticketed Delfest late night performances as well. Located along the Potomac River in the scenic Appalachian Mountains, and personally chosen by Del, the Allegheny County Fairgrounds in Cumberland, Maryland serves as the ideal location for Delfest. The fairgrounds are conveniently located near four major airports and can be easily reached by rail or road. For information including camping, parking, partners, and more, please visit delfest.com and follow Delfest on all social platforms. Spend Memorial Day weekend with the Del McCurry Band at Delfest 2022. Grab your tickets today. The Jambase March Madness Live Covers Tournament is currently underway. Following last year's format, round one consisted of 32 performances competing head-to-head on covers of the same song. The top vote-getter for each head-to-head competition moved on to round two to compete against a different song. There were two extremely close matchups in round one, as Nora Jones' cover of the Beatles' I've Got a Feeling received just three more votes than ALO with Tea Leaf Green. The other razor-thin margin of victory went to Umphreys McGee with special guest Kanika Moore and their cover of the Rolling Stones' I Can't Get No Satisfaction that edged out Dave Matthews' band with Mavis Staples by only one single vote. Round two Sweet 16 matchups include Nora Jones against My Morning Jacket and Umphreys taking on the String Cheese Incident and the infamous String Dusters. Round two also pits Fish against Government Mule, Widespread Panic against Green Sky Bluegrass, Tedeschi Trucks Band against Pigeons Playing Ping Pong, and much more. Get your jam-based March Madness live covers round two selections in now. Vote for your favorite songs, favorite bands, favorite guest spots. Pick a cover that's most like the original or one that's a wholly new arrangement. It's up to you to decide the criteria for who should win each round. Round two voting is open now through 11.59 p.m. Pacific on Sunday night, March 13th. Our friends at Sirius XM Fish Radio will premiere guitarist Trey Anastasio's debut solo acoustic album, Mercy, tonight, Thursday, March 10th at 6 p.m. Eastern. The nine songs on Mercy were written by Trey over the past two years and informed by his time spent in New York City during the COVID-19 pandemic. While a track list has yet to surface, Mercy is the title of an original song Anastasio debuted at night six of the Beacon Jams in November 2020. The new album follows the guitarist's 2020 solo LP, Lonely Trip, 
which was similarly influenced by the pandemic, but featured Trey on guitar, bass, and keyboards, with drums provided by Fish's John Fishman. Trey said, Mercy is like a bookend. It's two years since we went into hiding. This is still going on, and it's an even lonelier trip. Mercy will be available digitally tomorrow, Friday, March 11th. I'm really excited to hear what Trey's first solo acoustic album sounds like, and I'm really glad I don't have to wait long to find out. All right, now let's get to my interview with Steve Pultz. We spoke a few weeks ago right before the release of his new album, Stardust and Satellites. Steve was at his home in Nashville, and we talked about how his new album grew out of getting together with the Wood Brothers Oliver Wood and John O'Ricks during the start of the pandemic for socially distant backyard hangs that turned into jams. Oliver and John co-produced Stardust and Satellites, and along with engineer and bassist Brooke Sutton, were the primary backing musicians on the album that was recorded at the Wood Brothers Nashville studio. Steve and I talked a lot about his songwriting process and how it's evolved and changed over his lengthy career. Steve told me about his approach to working with outside collaborators and how guests like Nikki Bloom and Lindsay Liu were brought into the creative process. And we discussed his time as an adolescent in the traveling musical group Up With People, who you may be familiar with from their early Super Bowl halftime performances. Steve was a lot of fun and really easy to talk to. Be sure to check out his lovely new album, Stardust and Satellites, which is out now. Let's hear a bit of the album's opening track, Wrong Town, to take us into my interview with Steve Poltz. You're about to watch a show starring me. I don't know what you're about to hear or see. The truth is I have no plan at all. There's a good chance that off this stage I'll fall. My body ain't quite what it used to be. My hair ain't the color it once was. My style icon is Emmy Lou Harris, mixed with a little Don Was. I lie on stage, I lie on songs, I lay my troubles down. Hey, stick it out with me, kid. I mean, what else is there to do in this godforsaken, deep fried bacon town? Yeah, you bought the tickets, you paid the cash, you got in the car, you moved your ass. You brought a friend or an awkward date to something you love that they're probably gonna hate. It's music, sweet music. I'm emo, I'm screamo, I'm country and I'm folk Americana. If you wanna, I'm old fashioned, but I'm woke. I'm everything to everyone, I'm Jesus and I'm Buddha too, don't panic. I'm organic, I'm too scared to be satanic. But mostly I'm just here to sing for you. I'm here with Steve Poltz. We're, we're going to talk about your excellent new album, Stardust and Satellites. comes out on February 18th. Uh, I'm a, I'm, I've been listening to it over the last few days. It's, it's, it's a fun record. It touches on a lot of the emotional aspects of, of life. It kind of seems like uh, you're, you're maybe at a point where you're, you're, you're taking sort of a, a, a catalog of life's events and, and noticing where you're at in life and, and, and being conscious of that. Do you think that was something that came into your process when you were writing the songs on this album? Do you believe in deja vu? Because I feel like I've heard that before, which is weird. Like I, I'm having a moment that I've <laughs> talked to you about this, but I don't know why I'm having a complete deja vu. So yes, I'm, this is a double bonus for this conversation. And I feel like, yeah, I'm about to be 62 on February 19th. And um, my right mom after and dad the, right, both died. Right after the album comes out. Yeah, yeah I kind of did that on purpose. Nice. I wanted to do it on the 19th, but they, the label, record label said, you know, how about Friday rather than Saturday, <laughs> which I understand. Sure. So, 
I'm sorry, but you were saying your folks passed away. Yeah. So my mom passed away two and a half years ago, my dad last year. And so I'm sort of next in line (laughs) in the conveyor belt. And so that's where this, maybe this record, I'd like to think I was smart enough to have some kind of idea for a theme, but I don't think I'm that smart. (laughs) I feel like I just shoot from the hip and I stumble into every once in a while, I stumble into something good. I, uh, my condolences uh, for your parents. Uh, um, I, you did write a song called Conveyor Belt that does seem to address that directly. And, and it's very, it seems very biographical and it, it does sort of touch on the cycle of life and, and that, uh, that sort of idea that, that you're on this conveyor belt and you're, you're next. Wh- what part of the, when in the process of making this album did you write that song? That was later on in the record. It was weird. I didn't have it written. And then I had a bunch of other songs. And then out of the blue, back to back, I wrote Conveyor Belt and Can of Pop. Like I just okay. went home and, and it was like, I, this always happens when I make a record. It's the weirdest thing. Like I'll be making a record and I always expect magic to happen. And then songs will be gifted to me. And conveyor belt was gifted to me. It just showed up. And then, um, so I wrote that and I was thinking about my dad and my mom when I wrote it and the whole mm-hmm. idea that we're on this conveyor belt on the wheel of time. And we don't know when our card clocks out, but it was yesterday we were in our prime. And so that's when that came to me, I was like, I was gonna, I was learning a song by Tony Rice called oh. church street blues. And I yeah. love this on church street blues. And so I was learning it and he capos the guitar on the third fret and he's in a C shape. So I was learning church street blues. And then all of a sudden conveyor belt just nudged into my brain and said, wait, you got to write this right now. So it was really cool. So I was playing this Tony Rice song. My fingers were warmed up and then all of a sudden conveyor belt appeared. And I go, well, I can't learn this Tony Rice song because I'm going to write conveyor belt. And then I brought that in the studio, recorded it. And then the next night I was leaving the studio and I said to John O'Ricks from the Wood Brothers, the drummer and keyboardist of the Wood Brothers, mm-hmm. they were producing my record, John O and Oliver Wood. And I said, hey, give me a drum beat. I just, I get kind of squirrely at night and I like to write to different things. Give me a drum beat to write a song to. But I wasn't thinking it was for this album. I just, it was just an exercise I like to do. We already mm-hmm. had the songs picked. And then I heard that drum beat and I wrote Canapop. And I go, oh my God, this is so cool. I brought it in the next day. I go, I wrote this song to your drum beat. And they were like, we've got to record this. This is the coolest. And so they played on it and it became one of my favorite tracks on the record. Yeah, tracks two and three, man. <laughs> That's not bad. Yeah. So do, is that something you mentioned it it tends to happen when you're when you're making records? Does so that is kind of a common occurrence where the, the muse is sort of summoned and and you're you're able to kind of pull a song out of the ether. That that's happened before? Many times. All you have to do is be willing and ready and mm-hmm. also do it consistently so the neural pathways in your brain know you finish songs. They know you're available. So you get your muscle memory used to the fact that you don't just start a song, you finish a song. Even if it's a crappy song, it leads into the next conveyor belt for me, which I love that song conveyor belt. But maybe two days before that, I wrote a horrible song that that will never see the light of day, but I did it and I finished it. 
And then that made me go, oh yeah, I'm writing another song. It's almost like you're a journeyman carpenter and you go, uh-huh. oh, I know I build tables. I need to build another table. Oh, this will be an interesting table. Oh, this table's crappy. Oh, this next one's pretty good. And so I just keep building them. And then you end up with these songs and then you get a project and don't overthink it and go into the studio, stay relaxed, record with friends. And remember, it's not rocket science. It's not that important. You're going to be dead one day. You're just on the conveyor belt and you're leaving this piece of work behind. So don't stress. That's a fascinating insight. The the aspect of the completing of a song and muscle memory. I don't think I've ever heard anybody mentioned something like that before. When, when did you learn that? You've been writing songs for, for decades now. How long has that been part of your process? Well, when I first started writing songs, I realized I wanted to disseminate them and get them out to the public. I thought, hmm. So I'm going way back in the days of like 1975 when I was 15 years old and I would be playing classical guitar pieces and I would write these instrumentals. Never did I really think I was going to put out these songs that I would do this for a living, but I thought that would be cool. But there was always a velvet rope mentality out there. Of if a label deemed you worthy, they would open up the velvet rope and unleash the floodgates of publicity and make you a star. Little did I know all these years, what I learned was it was just all consistency and doing this. So I felt like, okay, I'm my own little factory. I got to put out these songs. How do I do it? I create the songs, but then who's my sales force? And, and I have to have something to sell. So then I, I create the song and my neural pathways in my brain get used to finishing the song. So that muscle doesn't atrophy. But then I have this recording muscle that I know nothing about. It's another muscle. And how do I go in and make this come to fruition? I need to find somebody with a studio. I need to find somebody that I trust. I need to learn how to record do I wear headphones? Do I record live? Do I play with a drummer live? Or am I using a click track? Or am I just using no click track and getting the feel and having people add on? Am I doing my vocals live with my acoustic guitar? It's like you're learning all these skills because if you play and sing at the same time and there's bleed from your guitar or bleed from your vocal into that track, then you go, well, I noticed that I sing differently if I just play it instrumentally to a click track, I'm singing the song differently because I'm not getting into the feel and the groove. So you, you sort of learn what's going to work for this song. And if I do take this song and I want it to be perfect and I play the guitar part first to a click track to make sure there's no vocal bleed, then sing over it. Am I ending up with a song that I've taken the soul out of just because mm-hmm. I was worried it sped up a little bit, or I was worried there was a little bit of bleed. So I come up with this whole antiseptic song that's, perfectly with no bleed and doesn't waver rhythmically but is that what i really want you know i listen to some of my favorite tracks and they speed up and there's bleed you know my favorite recordings aren't the sterile ones and so i learned about that and then so you you work on that muscle which is the recording muscle and then you're your own sales force so then you got to go out and you've got to sell this product how do you do that by getting up in front of an audience And you may panic the first time. So that's another muscle that you've got to work on. You've got to develop that muscle. So you have these three muscles, the one that records, the one that writes the songs first, then you have the, you have the thing you need to record, you record it. Then you got to go out on the road and you've got to sell it. So you have these three things you're doing. You're a three headed monster. And if you don't do one for a while, it atrophies and you go, do I finish songs anymore? And that's where the whole myth of writer's block comes into people. 
It doesn't really exist. They just forgot to give themselves deadlines. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting way to put it. I like the idea that, that writer's block isn't really writer's block. It's just you don't like the songs that you're writing or you don't like the work that you're writing. It doesn't mean that you're not actually able to make work. And I think what you're talking about or you were alluding to before is like you write that song that isn't that good, but it might lead later on to can a pop because you are exercising that muscle so after saying what the heck i ended up a quebec i passed out in the rain and ended up in a train from montana to savannah woke up in louisiana shot at a hosanna and i slipped on a banana gave my girl a nod and said glory be to god honey let me open up a can of pop i'm rusty like an old horseshoe i've been working on about writing songs do you have strategies to employ that keeps that muscle memory working that keeps that keeps you going so that you are creating new new songs and, and making new stuff every day or, or or at least at a regular pace yes um so i i used to believe that you would wait for the muse to strike uh-huh. and you go man i'm i'm in a drought right now but I became really good friends with this guy named Bob Schneider from Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And he's a wonderful friend of mine, one of my dearest friends. And he came up with this songwriting game where we would have a a word prompt. And a lot of people do this today, but this is way back, you know, before the uh, World Trade Center fell and all that. We were doing this. And so what I learned was, okay, if I think of some of my columnists I like to read maybe from New York times. And I go, wow, how does Maureen Dowd put out an article every week? And on Saturday, I'll get the note that the notice that Maureen Dowd's new, new op-ed pieces up are David Brooks or Paul Krugman or Gail Collins and all these different people who I like to read uh, New York times columnists, whether they're from the right or from the left, I love seeing they have to come up with something every week and they do it because they have deadlines. Yes. That deadline you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, is this really that magic? Yes. Music's magic. But if you don't go fishing every day, you're not going to catch a fish. And so it was this consistency of, I got to throw my, my pole in the water and I need to see if I catch something. And so that was where that came from. And, and that has helped me over the years. So if you write one song a week and you get 52 songs a year and you hit 20% that you like that are good, you're going to end up with 10 songs a year. You could put out a record a year of 10 songs that you're actually really proud of out of 52 that you wrote. If you're able to hit a 20% success ratio on that, and maybe you're not, maybe you're only hitting 10% that you like, or sometimes you're just having a really, your crops are just bountiful. You're like, man, this was a good year. I'm hitting 50%. And <laughs> you're able to keep putting stuff out the more you do it. And I, I co-write with people too. And sometimes I think I'm co-writing for them, but then I end up with a gem from the co-write. That's cool. Do you, when were the, so we've talked about a couple of the songs that kind of came out 
sort of spontaneously. Were the other songs on this album part of that process that you're talking about of, of getting a, a song a week or something along those lines of, of working the song more? Yeah. So on the song we spoke about earlier, Conveyor Belt, I went home and um, I had a song due. And in the song, the song prompt was click clack. So I was like, I was thinking of my dad and my mom. And I wrote this song, Conveyor Belt. And I went, oh, this is a cool little hook. And I got this Church Street Blues thing, Capo 3. I'm playing a C chord, but it's actually uh, D sharp, I guess you would call it or something. Okay. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or an E flat, I should say. Right? Yes. Yeah. E I, you're, asking, you're asking the wrong person. I'm just going to keep saying yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Sounds well, right to me. Sharp, usually I think it's E flat. E so flat. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So I'm playing that. And then I go, oh, I can say click, clack and kill two boards with one stone. So I went click, clack. Um, Mick, Mac, click, clack. Don't even think about looking back. Kodak soundtrack. I remember when my mom had a heart attack. So I have this song now. I'm like, wow, I'm onto something. And when I feel the buzz in my body, sometimes I get goosebumps. I'm like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like I threw my fishing pole in the water. And I go, oh my God, I got a big fish on the line here. Don't blow it. And I start reeling it in. I'm like, I polish it up. And then the next morning I wake up and I listen to it first thing when I wake up on my memo of the on the iphone you know the recordings mm-hmm. and i go was sure. this as good as i thought it was and i go oh it could be better and then i start rewriting something i go this could be better you know sometimes i think something's good and then i get back on it and i realize oh it needs more work and i edit and a lot of times i leave a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor and then i come back to i go okay now and i just feel like it's right then i go now mm-hmm. it's ready to record and then you take it into the studio and it becomes a big kid. It's like going to college and it gets its degree because these other guys, the Wood Brothers this time are playing stuff. And, you know, I could have done this so many different ways, depending on who I worked with, because depending on how you treat a song, you never know how it's going to come out by who's producing it, how you record it, what's available that day. So that's pretty cool because I could yeah. re-record it with a whole nother producer and it would sound completely different. conveyor belt in the factory on the wheel of time yeah we don't know when our cart clocks out it was yesterday we were in our prime micmac click clack don't even think about looking back kodak soundtrack i remember when my ma had a heart attack We are all on the conveyor belt in the factory on the wheel of time. Yeah, we don't know when our cart clocks out. It was yesterday and we were in our prime. Tic tac, tic tac toe. Hey, I'm still looking for Indian Joe. Where the hell did my dad go? Maybe where the river and the rainbow flow. Yeah, maybe where the river and the rainbow. So let's talk about the the producers on the, this album, the Wood Brothers, Oliver Wood and, and John O'Ricks. They they how did they come into the into this project? I know that they're they're in Nashville, right? So so is that the connection here? 
Yeah. So what happened was I played uh, High Sierra Music Festival yes. and I met all over there. And um, I, I've played that festival so many times. It's one of my favorites, that and Del Fest and Hangtown Halloween. Um, they put on all those really cool festivals in that whole world. Yeah, and so my my buddy Jay Blakesburg would take photos of me and I'd mm-hmm. hang out with him. And then he knew those guys and my friend Paige Clem who was all a part of the Terrapin Crossroads scene and yep, the great yep. room when I would play shows, she was at uh, high Sierra and she's the person that would get you paid and help with social media. And she came, she was, she would drive artists around in a golf cart, like maybe Tedeschi trucks or something that needs to get to their stage mm-hmm. and, in the golf course. And she drove all of her after his show. Now at high Sierra, there's all these areas where everybody camps yeah. It's super cool. And late at night, a lot of magic takes place around the campfire. Definitely. So Definitely. Oliver said, take me to one of the cool areas where everybody hangs out. So she took him to this thing called the crew of Rue, uh, Chef Larry and Chef Rody. And Rody is the merch guy for Green Sky Bluegrass. And they would cook all this food at this campground, the crew of Rue, they called it. The Rue, mm-hmm. like in the Cajun food. So yeah. she brought Oliver by and he heard me playing. And then I said, hey, come sit in with me. I'll do a song. So I sang the song Peggio that old folk song, Peggy yep. o and the dead do it and stuff. Mm-hmm. So Oliver played these cool leads and then we became friends. And I said, Oh, you live in Nashville. I live in Nashville. And then he was like, come on over and do a song in our studio. And we won't even charge you for the first one, like a drug dealer. So I went over to his house <laughs> or to his studio and I did the first one free. And then I went, Oh my God, they add so much to these songs and how lucky am I? that we have a pandemic right now and I have all this time to just hang out like the pandemic I know was painful for a lot of people and horrible, but mm-hmm. there's all these lessons to be learned from it. And it was such a uh, cool thing to be able to have all this time off all of a sudden, because I've always done like 200 gigs a year yeah. and work nonstop. And I found myself baking bread and going on walks and slowing down and I got to visit with my dad. I went out to San Diego and rented an apartment on the beach and saw him every other day. And little did I know he was going to die in a few oh, wow. months. And it was almost like this gift handed yeah. to me that I, well, I got nothing else to do. I'll go out there. And my dad was lonely because he was in a uh, independent living facility and they wouldn't mm-hmm. let the, the folks all eat together because everybody was obviously concerned about COVID. Cause if it Definitely. went through one of those homes, everybody's like 90 years old, you'd have a lot of death. So they, I would come up and I would test myself for COVID and then come up and take my dad out lunch. And so I got to really have these visits that were like a gift from the universe and I got to spend this time with him. And so I hung out with him and um, then I was writing songs and going to the beach every day, going on walks. And I'll always look back on the pandemic sort of, I hate saying this because it sounds ungrateful or something, but with, uh, with fondness. Yeah. But I know everybody had their own situation from it. And I was one of the fortunate ones who didn't have to, I wasn't an essential worker or something. Right. I mean, it's a silver lining, right? I mean, you still had exactly. to deal with the testing and, and not being able to see your dad as you would like to have, you know, and so you, you, but you still were able to have that beautiful experience, which I'm sure had to have influenced you just not only as a person, but as an artist, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, how did you, you said you recorded that first song with, with Oliver and, and Jono. What was that song? And how did, how did you decide that would be the first song to try with them? 
With, you know, this is another reason like I, I have no method to my madness. Yeah. I had just written I had just written the song Frenemy, and it was from okay. the song game I was in. And I go, oh, this is cool. And all that happened was I grabbed a guitar that was available in my house. I, I have like three or four guitars sitting around, but they're always in different tunings. So I had just learned a song that was by um that guy, he was in Smokey in the Bed. Jimmy, Jerry Reed, Jerry Reed, the great guitarist. He wrote, oh, yeah, sure. When You're Hot, You're Hot. And he wrote Amos Moses, great mm-hmm. guitar player. And he was best friends with uh, Chet Atkins. And so Chet Atkins had given him a weird tuning. And so he wrote a song called Steeplechase Lane. So I took the tuning from Steeplechase Lane and I had just written a song called Up With People. And uh-huh. so I'd written that. And then I had another guitar tune, CGCGC. E, that was a droney tuning. And so I picked up that guitar the next day and I had another song due, and that we were supposed to say friend of me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even know what guitar I was grabbing. I started playing the opening chords to friend of me, and I go, Oh, this is pretty. And then I was just reading some Kierkegaard, and I went, Oh, that'll be a good thing to say. So I, I can rhyme that with yard. So I just went, the opening line just came in. I was she was in the Kierkegaard and I was sitting in her yard and we were talking all about a leap of faith because Kierkegaard's whole thing was talking about a leap of faith, mm-hmm. taking a blind leap of faith. And then she put on some Shostakovich, but her, and I, was, I had been listening to Shostakovich, so I was thinking of all this stuff. I was like, this is just falling into my lap, but her humming <laughs> was so out of pitch, just like a piece of metal on a spinning lathe. And I was going, oh, I could put friend of me into this. So I wrote that song, so I was most excited because it was my newest song. So I went in that day and I said, oh, I just wrote the song called Friend of Me. Let's do that. And then Jono started playing the strings inside the piano and like oh, okay. hitting them. And uh-huh, that's uh-huh. those cool sounds, these squeaks you're getting. And that's how Friend of Me was recorded. And I went, oh, my God, this guy's a genius. Him and Oliver, to be able to work with them during this pandemic and have them put their hearts into this record. Like really, they didn't have anything else to do. They weren't yeah. touring. It wasn't like they were in a rush and go, oh, we got two days and we got to go out because we're starting a tour in uh, Delaware or something. No, mm-hmm. they were home. And so we were just like eat tacos together and talk about the record and live with these songs, drink a lot of coffee, get mm-hmm. wired and and start having fun making these songs. So Frenemy was the first one. She was in the Kierkegaard and I was sitting in her yard and we were talking all about a leap of faith. She put on some Shostakovich but her humming was so out of pitch just like a piece of metal on a spinning lathe. I told her I'd always be a friend. She told me she loved me to the end Friend of me And me You're a friend of me Till you set me free Don't ever let me be And, and about how long then did it, did those sessions last? Like when, when did you, from start to finish about how long were you guys working together? I'd say we did the whole thing in about two weeks. I record okay. really fast because yeah. 
I go in and I know the songs and I'm, if I wrote it, I know how to play it because I've played the crap out of it. Like when I write a song, that's all I do. I'll play it. I have no qualms playing it 300 times in a row and I'm not even being facetious. Yeah. I will play that song till I get inside the song. It's mm-hmm. almost like I have a weird tick and it will drive somebody crazy, but I can literally pour over every detail in that song until I become a part of the song and I believe it. So I had written it and I played it all night and I was so into it when I brought it in, they were like, Oh, this is such a cool song. You know, it so well. And I, they didn't even know I'd just written it and I did it. And then I had these other songs stored up because I had written up with people in the tuning that Chet Atkins tuning that Mm -hmm. actually was erroneous because he gave Jerry Reed a different tuning and Jerry Reed didn't hear him right because he was drunk and he wrote it down as like DGD EBD. And that wasn't the tuning that Chet Atkins gave him, but he wrote Steeplechase Lane, which is a really cool instrumental. So I learned how to play Steeplechase Lane. And then I went, well, if I'm in this weird tuning, I should write another song that I can do on stage so I don't have to tune back all of a sudden so I could have two songs in a row. So I wrote up with people in that tuning and John wrote a really cool drum part to it, played the shitar on it. That that song is is pretty wild. It, it's... Uh... It's about the that like dance troupe, or what, I'm not sure exactly what to call them. That played at the Super Bowl half times in like the 70s, yeah. right? That's yeah, that's the reference. You were in it. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So what it was was my sister went in 1976 to up with people. She left. She graduated from in 1976. I graduated in 78, and so okay. she left me. It was like the movie Almost Famous. She left me her waterbed and all her records. And she would have me put my head between the speakers. She had a Marantz receiver and a really cool turntable from the 70s. And I would put my head between the speakers and she would have me listen to Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark, and have me harmonize to those songs. Like She was my mentor. Wow, you and need so those siblings. Yeah. yeah, I would listen to Joni Mitchell. And then she went away to up with people and I thought it was the coolest thing. Like looking back on it now and you listen to those songs, it's totally cheesy. But when you're 16 years old, you're like, this is the coolest thing ever. She's in up with people. She's touring the world. So I was a classical, classical guitarist because I had gone to see Julian Bream when I was six and I learned classical guitar. So I was playing songs by like Vox Bore mm-hmm. and songs by Fernando Soar, these etudes and all these beautiful songs. And so up with people came to my high school and then you could audition if you wanted afterwards. So they played at our gymnasium and half the school was like, this is so lame. You know, <laughs> we want to hear black stuff. This is so yeah. lame. And then I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. It's like this all American singing group. It wasn't religious, but it could have mm-hmm. borderline been religious. So it was people from different countries. So I auditioned and they, and I played Romanza, this piece Romanza, this classical guitar piece that's really famous. And I had it down and I nailed it. And I was like this precocious little uh, senior in high school. And I was on the wrestling team. I was a 98 pounder. My senior, I was 106. And I was in drama and I was in madrigals, which was like the top singing group. And I, and I was, so I was in drama, madrigals, and I was on the wrestling team and I played classical guitar. So You're I busy. had all these different friends. <laughs> yeah, I was really busy. And so I auditioned and they go, oh my God, you're a great guitar player. Come join us. So I got sent out to Tucson, Arizona. I was living in Palm Springs, California, and you lived with a host family. And then I got put in the la- a host family would take in all the people you'd live with the family. And I got sent away 
to cast, I think we were cast A, 1978, and we traveled to all the Latin American countries. Or not all of them. We went to Mexico. We lived in Mexico and would play bowl rings, and we lived in Argentina. So our songs, a lot of them were in Spanish, and we would live with Mexican or Argentine families, and some of whom were very poor. And I, my mind was just blown because here's this 18-year-old kid coming from Palm Springs, California. All of a sudden, I'm on a bus. We had two buses that were like Greyhound buses, not really nice tour buses, but buses with just seats. Mm -hmm. And we would get into the town. You'd get off. You'd get into the town after you'd get your show down. And we had costume changes. We'd have a big diesel truck that had a stage. We had a full band. So I was in the band. There were dancers. There were lead singers. And this was like a really tight 90-minute show with ups and downs and people would be crying. Like it was songs like what color is God's skin? Like really kind of cheesy songs. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like it, it, this has, this gives me no indie cred. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talking to you going. It's still oh, fascinating, dude, I was, I started, man. I started the fucking punk rock band and I was like, <laughs> no, that wasn't me. I was in up with people. So, so I leave and it, this is what wet my appetite because I was out there on the road and I go, this is the coolest thing ever. I'm in the band. And the band had horns, clarinets, a harp, timpani drum. And so when you would go into the town, you would set up the stage and you would sound check. And then during the day, we would go do community outreach. So we would play in an old folks home. We'd go uh -huh. sing them songs or we'd go to a prison or we'd go to an oh, insane wow. asylum, oh, mental wow. home. And we, and I would always be the one that would go because I was the acoustic guitarist. Now this was 1978 and disco was huge. So they called me disco acoustic and our song, the one cover song we would do that was on the radio. We'd end the show with was burn baby, burn disco inferno. Burn baby. Yeah. Burn, yeah. Yeah. Disco. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> we're playing disco. And I was totally into disco because it was 1978. And I loved that movie. Um, that was uh, Saturday night. Saturday night Fever. Fever. And I wore an yeah. Italian horn. And I had big polyester, uh, you know, the collars. Lapels, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had these outfits that were so cheesy looking. <laughs> so we would go to these, do these reach out shows, community outreach. We'd play in prisons and we'd play in mental homes and old folks homes. And I remember we were in this old, old folks home and I was 18 years old and there was a gospel song this lady wanted to hear, and it was called How Great Thou Art. It's a yeah, famous gospel song. song. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know it. I was raised Catholic, but we didn't sing How Great Thou Art. And I remember the whole- I was, that's how I know it. <laughs> yeah, I should know it. But I was in, and I was in folk mass. I played yeah. guitar. So I remember we're sitting around there and we're playing and this woman raises her hand and she goes, excuse me. And I go, yes. And she goes, do you know how great thou art? And I go, oh, we're not that good, but thank you. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. That's so, amazing. So we would play now and up with people. The cool thing is, is afterwards, then we'd go out and we'd sign autographs. So I got a taste of everything. And then we would tear down the stage, load out, load in, load out. Mm -hmm. And then one person out of the cast, uh, two people, I mean, would get to go ahead. You'd get one shot to do this and you'd leave the cast for two weeks and do PR in another city. So I got sent ahead to uh, Ciudad de Mexico, Mexico City, mm -hmm. to to do PR. And I got to do it twice. I got to do it in Buenos Aires, Argentina, because I was good at it, because I've always had the gift of gab. So they were like, this guy's too good to waste. Like yeah. some people were shy and couldn't talk. But I was like, from the day I was born, I was like, 
I wanted to, I wanted to be in cabaret. Like I wanted to be um, the part of cabaret or I wanted to be on Fiddler on the Roof. I wanted to do, be in a musical like Godspell. So they sent me ahead and I would do PR and be on television and radio and talk about the show. So imagine being 18 years old, going on a bus, having a, I fell in love with a girl on the bus. So I had a little (laughs) cast girlfriend and then we broke up eventually, but you would stay in these houses, people's houses. They would take you in and cook you this food. And then you'd send them a thank you card. You had to send them a thank you card and you'd be on your way the next day to another city and you'd show up and do it again. I, I never wanted it to end. And that's, it was like running away and joining the circus. So yeah. when I got back home, I was like, oh my God, you know, it's that saying, how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? That was me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a taste of it and I became a lifer. I was like, this is what I need to do. But my parents wanted me to go to college. So I went to university, but I still played shows at night. So and that's... I thought, man, if I could figure out a way to do this, if I could just figure out a way to play gigs, I'd be the happiest guy in the world. But it and really was that up with people experience that sort of propelled you into the career that you have now. Totally. totally. I think it was because it wet my appetite. And then mm-hmm. I discovered, I just, you know, I went away to San Diego state university and they, they used to have, it was 1979, 1980. And they would have these music rooms where you could check out, like you show them your student ID and you could get three records and go into these rooms and listen on headphones yeah. to any record you wanted. So I'd go in and I'd look around and go, huh, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Rasta Monve Vibrations. It's 1979. I'd never heard of this. Yeah. Reggae music. Reggae music. That sounds cool. And then I put it on and I'd hear, live if you want to live. Rasta Vibration. Yeah. And I'm listening to that going, I'm learning every song, listening to that. And then I go, oh, this is cool. What is this one? And it was an old Sid Barrett record from Pink Floyd. Oh, and yeah. so I'm like, oh, this is really cool. He's so descriptive with his words. And I'm listening to everything I get my hands on. And then my sister had a gig as a DJ at KCR Radio, which was the college radio station. So mm-hmm. at the time, I remember I was listening to Pink Floyd. I'd just come out with The Wall. I'm listening to The Wall, and my sister comes home and goes, put that Pink Floyd shit away. This is where it's at. And she gives me a record, and it was Elvis Costello, My Aim is True. Oh, and wow. I'm like, I remember looking at the cover, the black and white checkered thing, how he looks like Buddy Holly, but his name's Elvis. And mm-hmm. he's got Costello and he's holding that guitar. He's got his legs, kind of his knees knocked. And then I put it on. I hear the vinyl go. And I hear, now that your picture's in the paper, being rhythmically admired. You can have anyone that you had ever desired. All you got to tell me now is why, 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 why. Welcome to my working week. And I'm just like, this is the coolest music ever. Yeah, so this then is I not got Pink totally Floyd. <laughs> no, and I still love Pink Floyd. And I remember sure, I had sure. this girlfriend. Man, this girl would come over named Mary, and she spelled her name M-A-R-E-E. Long hippie hair, and she had rings on her toes. Like, on her toes. <laughs> yeah. She had rings, and yeah. it was 79, 80, maybe 1980. And we would, I was underage, but I had a fake ID, and I would get a bottle of Blue Nun wine. It was like this popular wine back then. And we would make out and put on Pink Floyd. Hello, hello, hello. Is there yeah. anybody? And then we'd smoke a joint. And that, that was like, this is the coolest music ever. So I liked everything. I yeah. liked punk rock. I liked the jam band. I liked it all. 
My sister taught me how to smoke weed Before she joined up with people She left me all her rolling papers So I joined up with people too Smoked so much dope, I saw double Saw Santa Claus in my urine bubbles He said, you've been a bad boy, you're in lots of trouble Up, up with people, you meet them wherever you go Up, up with people, they're the best kind of folks we know I, I, we were talking before about Frenemy, and we've we've talked about the Wood Brothers. Uh, there's there's collaborators on this record on on Frenemy. Nikki Blooms sings. Uh, Lindsay Lou's on a couple of tracks. Anthony DaCosta's on a track on a couple. Uh, Maya DeVitri, I think I said her name right. Uh, yeah. How? First of all, just what's your sort of approach for bringing in guest contributors to to an album or a project like this? And then, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the specific ones. Okay, so there's a song on it that's called "It's Baseball Season." Yes, and it's real jazzy sounding. Mm-hmm. So I had a I had a teacher in a guitar teacher in um, high school, and his name was Nelson Baker, and he left me an old Fender Tweed amp and an old Guild guitar electric. And he taught me that riff of those chords. Boom, dee, dee, doom, dee, dee. And I always had it in my head. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of the chord structure for an old jazz song called These Foolish Things. So I remember I always had it and I changed it up. And I was like, I'm going to write something with that one day. So I had these two wizards come over to my house, Rob Ikes and Trey Hensley. Mm-hmm. And they're both, Trey Hensley's a finger picking. He's like on the same level as Billy Strings, like just a wonderful uh, flat picker. And then, uh-huh. uh, Rob Ikes is a dobro player. So I had the music written and then they wrote the rest of the lyrics with me on that one, but they didn't play on it. But the people that played on my record, Lindsay Lou sang, mm-hmm. um, and she's so the amazing. Way that happened. Yeah. So we had written this song, let's stay together. That's on the record. And then Nikki Bloom's always been a friend of mine. I've, I'm really close with Tim Bloom and with Nikki Bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, they're both, I, I go way back with the mother hips and way back with Nikki Bloom. She came to a songwriting workshop that me and Tim Bloom would do together. So okay. I, I was like, I got to get Nikki to sing on this song. So I did, uh, Lindsay Lou sang, and then Maya DeVitri, she was in a band called Stray Birds and now she's solo. And she's one of my favorite, uh, people on the universe. She's just so good. And so I had her sing. And then Oliver Wood played guitar, John O'Ricks. And then Anthony DaCosta, he's a 30-year-old genius. And he lives here in Nashville. And we go way back. And he has a little recording studio he owns, too. And he's also tours and plays with everybody from Molly Tuttle to Aoife Donovan to uh, Sierra Hall to Joy Williams to, I mean, just it goes on and on. He plays with so many different people. And so he came over and... Um, we wrote a couple songs, Stardust and Satellites and Wrong Town. And he sings harmony on Wrong Town. And so there's a lot of collaborators when you live in Nashville. It's it's such a vibrant music community. I, I walk right, I live near Ugly Mugs Coffee. I'll walk up there and that's kind of where I call it my office. And okay. I'll say to people, like tomorrow I'll meet Tommy Womack there and I'll go meet me at Ugly Mugs because I can walk there. Mm-hmm. And then I get a cup of coffee and we sit outside and just discuss whatever we're going to do. And, and then if I want to write with them, they always come to my house, like Billy strings will come over. And so like for his 
new song, we have a song on that called Leaders. It's the final track on his record. Mm -hmm. And we co-wrote that and Billy had texted me those lyrics and I wrote the music to it, which it was kind of cool because it was like how Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice would do things. One would write lyrics, one music. Usually I come, I do both, but mm -hmm. Billy wrote all the lyrics and I didn't change one. And I wrote all the music and he didn't change any of the music and kept it, uh, the guitar part and everything. So it's it really cool. Um, That's interesting. And, I'd almost think it would be the opposite rules. I, I with know, you two. me too. Me too. But yeah, both uh, the thing with Billy Strings and with Molly Tuttle when we write, a lot of people know of them as guitar wizards, but they're both really good with lyrics. Like mm -hmm. I like, I love hammering this in whenever I talk about them. Like, yes, they're great musicians, but Molly Tuttle, she writes, yes. she's a poet and Billy Strings is deep. That guy, I love Definitely. him so much. God, Definitely. I love that guy. They're, yeah. the, they're all around talents. And I think that's really why they're getting the recognition that they are. They're not just you know, singular entities. They're, they, can, they can do it all, really. Uh, I, call somebody... them the... oh, so, go I, call, I call them the super virus kids. You know how you get these super viruses that, that antibiotics don't work against? super yeah. strains yeah i call these kids these are the kids that grew up that had youtube when we didn't and mm -hmm. they could learn all these songs off youtube and mm -hmm. do this and back when i was a kid and it was 60 1967 and i was playing guitar we couldn't say to somebody oh it sounds like the beatles no it is the beatles it's 1967 yeah. <laughs> but these guys are now going it's kind of like the beatles mixed with the cure and right. then also think radiohead think earth wind and fire think this they're able to cull all these extra things and go, oh, I learned all these Tony Rice licks. I've learned this. And I call them the super virus kids because yeah. they're a newer, stronger breed and they know lyrics, they know everything. And they're just like how football players there are bigger and stronger. And if you were to have like today's um, NFL team, like say you were to have the Patriots of today play a team from the 60s, these players from yeah. the day would be so much bigger they would kick ass like exactly. the plays they'd be doing everything that's these new super virus kids and i love that's them a, all that's a great metaphor a great analogy for them I, I, it's it's accurate definitely there's there's somebody else i wanted to ask you about that's on the record uh brooke sutton the bass player uh how was he brought into the, to the the project okay so brooke sutton is like the star of this record because yes not only does he play on it he engineered the freaking thing. Okay. It's his, he owns the studio with Oliver Wood, Chris Wood, and John O'Ricks. So normally Chris Wood from Modesky Martin and Wood, um, mm -hmm. that's and the Chris Wood brothers. Is. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the Wood brothers. Normally Chris Wood would have played bass on it because he's my neighbor. He was my neighbor. My other neighbor is Robin Ford. He's right next door. Oh, so really? I always hear him playing on his Dumble amp. Down the road is Langhorn Slim. And so Chris Wood and me would go on walks every day during the pandemic. We'd do these six mile walks with his wife, Laura, and my wife, Sharon, and their dogs. And then I hadn't started making the record yet. And then he moved up to Salt Spring Island in Canada. So he wasn't available. So Oliver said, come on over. And I said, well, I need a, a bass player. And he goes, Brooke Sutton's one of the best. He plays <laughs> jazz. He plays everything. Even Chris Wood would totally give him his blessing. Oh, wow. And he's the engineer. And so... Brooke was everything. He's like this. He is. I'm glad you asked about him because he's the MVP of the record. Brooke Sutton is. He engineered it. He's running back, getting all the mic sounds, everything ready, mm -hmm. doing it all. Um, Did you have then, a lot of discussions with him about the engineering, or or even with Oliver or, or Jono, just sort of as as 
as it relates to the sound of the rec- record or the textures of the record? That's a great question. That's a really good question because I wish that's another time I wish I was that smart. I feel like I'm my one superpower is I can inspire people to write songs. And the other superpower is I have really good instincts. So mm-hmm. I pick people that I know aren't going to cheese it out. And I'm going to yeah. put, I, I give them my full blessing. That's why I pick them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to waste time. I will say if I'm not into a sound, but I'll say what I like. We, and they have a large knowledge of music. And so do I. So I'm able to say, you remember on that one record um, when um, Leo Kotke put it out and it was called, you know, whatever, Chewing mm-hmm. Pine. I like the sound of Leo Kotke on this record. Remember Ricky Lee Jones' album, Pirates? Remember what the piano sounded like? It was so organic. So I'm able to talk, uh, or the replacements, I, I constantly use them. I go, remember how Paul Westerberg played Skyway? And it's such a beautiful song, but he did it with a double make care attitude. I've got to remember to keep that attitude going in. So I love being able to dis- discuss these things with them. And we were on the same wavelength. So it's a great question. And I feel like mm-hmm. I'm really good at seating control and letting me just do the music. And I never freak out when I'm recording. I don't freak out at all. Is, that the, fun. is that the same with the guests? Like, are, do you just tell... Nikki Bloom or Lindsay Liu sing, sing what you feel goes here, or is, is there more of a direction of, of what you, what you would want from them? Well, first of all, I welcome them into the studio and I give them a hug and I go, man, you are perfect for this. So my, (laughs) my job is to make them be totally relaxed because there's always a bit of trepidation. Everybody, you've Mm -hmm. already got your own established core group. And here's an interloper coming in to add this flavor. And it can be sort of unnerving. So what I do right away is I always greet them out at the car, hug them and go, oh my God, I handpicked you for this. Number one, we either wrote the song together or we didn't like with Nikki Bloom. Mm -hmm. Nikki, your alto is going to sound so good. So I'll center the song and I'll go, here's kind of what I was thinking. Tell me what you're thinking now. Okay. I'm thinking maybe this, but if you find something better, please do it because there's no right or wrong. And then I just make sure all their levels are right. They feel really good. Listen to it a few times. Act like we're not recording them yet, but secretly be recording them and get a bunch of takes out of them and then have them come in and listen and then go back and do it again. By the time they leave, I make sure they're totally happy. I'm like a, I'm like a horse whisperer, but a people whisperer. I'm really good at, that's my thing. I'm not good at organization. I don't know how to run an, or engineer a record. I don't know anything about where to put a mic. I know nothing about equipment. I'm not a gearhead, but what I am is a people whisperer. And I'm good at making somebody just feel so relaxed and welcome that they're going to sing their best and know that I have faith in them. It sounds like, I mean, you're, you're a collaborator. You're, you're a... yeah you know, a true collaborator in every, in every sense of the term. Um, I, I know that you have been on tour a little bit with the Wood Brothers late recently, and there were some live collaborations, right? Oh yeah. So fun. So I caught COVID right before I was supposed to leave. So I couldn't mm-hmm. join them for the first part. Cause I'm riding on their tour bus with them. So I can't come in and infect them infect all and be yeah. typhoid Mary because <laughs> they've got gigs to do. So I caught the COVID. I didn't think you could get it in Florida, but I guess you can. <laughs> and so I was playing a festival down there and I got it. And then I joined them after uh, my 14 day quarantine. 
And as a side note, anybody who tells you if you're triple vaxxed, like I am with Moderna, with the booster, that it's just like a minor head cold, that's a bunch of bullshit. I was sick. Yeah, My man. throat was swollen shut. I was really sick. I'm sorry and to hear that. But yeah, but I got over it. <laughs> you did. I was going to say, how's your recovery been then? great but i lost my sense of taste smell mm. it was like i my food was wax I that was happened to my wife no too that's oh. it, it, like and then she started getting better and it hadn't come back and we were both like this is the worst part now <laughs> you know like it's no fun to eat eat food or drink together anymore like this is no good but it finally did come back for her too um but but how are the how are the new songs playing in front of people Oh, okay. So getting back to what you asked me. So yeah, there were these collaborations. Oh, no worries. So there were these collaborations. And so I would open the shows mm -hmm. and then I would, um, they would call me out and we would do a song in the middle around one of those mics. That's like a right. bluegrass mic. I don't know what you call them, but there's a special name. Mm -hmm. And we would stand around the mic and we would do turn your radio on, which is an old gospel song. Um, a lot of people know it from John Hartford's record, Aerial Plane. It's the opening right. track on Aerial Plane. Mm -hmm. It's the one, turn your radio on and listen to the music in the air. And so we would do that. And then at the end, they would call me back up and we'd do a song for the encore. And that was super fun because we do Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls, the TLC song. And I would have a dance off with Chris Wood while he's holding <laughs> his bass because he's a really good dancer. He's incredible. An yeah. Amazing. That's so we have a dance a off, tough competitor right there. Oh, he'd always win because I'm <laughs> okay. a horrible dancer. It would be like fast, fast guy Joe. Dancing is not my superpower. I'm a horrible <laughs> yeah. dancer. Okay. I'm a geek and an idiot, but it's fun. And yeah, it fun. made it really yeah. fun for the audience because you had a really spastic guy dancing with somebody who was really good. And so the juxtaposition made it good. If we were both good, it wouldn't have been as funny. So it was kind of like a, it was like, I love Lucy at the chocolate factory, almost watching uh -huh. me dance. And so we would do that every night. And that was super fun. And getting back to your question, how did the new songs go over? I opened every show with let's stay together because I mentioned the wood brothers in it. I say, yes. so we put on some wood brothers. And, uh -huh. and I tell the audience after that, it might've sounded like I was pandering to the audience saying that, but it's really on the recording and you'll see come <laughs> February 18th. And when I originally wrote it, I would always say anybody's name. Like we put on some Neil Young, we put on some Joel Plaskett. I'd say any musician, mm -hmm. but then they hadn't heard the song yet. And I was recording it and I did it just to surprise them. And I'll be damned if that wasn't the take we used. The first no take sometimes is the best, you know? Yeah, definitely. I'm a, I'm a one or two take guy. Uh -huh. So here's my thing. I know the song so well when I go in the studio and I'm not intimidated at all. Because I played them, I played a lot of shows, so I just know I know the song. Yeah. And so I like to record without headphones because I don't like, I feel like I sing too precious when I hear my voice. I try to make it too pretty and I'm like, oh, I sound good. Listen, yeah. to that. I can yeah. make it more husky. And I like, <laughs> and then I listen, I go, what was I thinking? I'm like really exaggerating that. So I've learned if I can not play with headphones. Don't do it because it sounds just like I'm talking to you. It's my real voice, how I'm singing. Yeah. And so it's taking me a long time to learn that, by the way. So I did that song. I would open with it. And then I'd do Wrong Town, which you think would be the opening song because that opens the record. Mm -hmm. And I would explain that I wrote that song with Anthony Acosta because I was playing Tell Your Ride Bluegrass Fest. And it's a big stage. And 
I, I, they didn't want me to have a band. That's a funny thing. I play these festivals. So like, no, we don't want you with a band. We want you to come up telling stories and do what you do. Mm-hmm. So I wrote Wrong Town with Anthony to open my show at Telluride Bluegrass Fest. So I told the audience, track one on my new record is Wrong Town, and I use it. Um, I did it at Telluride Bluegrass Fest. So I want you guys to pretend you're stoned and you're on high altitude. <laughs> and I walk out, and this is my opening track. So are you at Telluride? So I do the opening song, then I walk off stage. I'm like, no, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to tell you, I come out, I do it again. The audience would cheer. And they were so with me when I did Wrong Town that the, then the rest of the show, I do like one or two tracks off that record and then a bunch of okay. oldies because I wanted to do everything. Because I have a yeah. song called Quarantine Blues that I had to play. Quarantine Blues mm-hmm. mentions everything. I don't know if you've heard that, but it mentions I have, everything yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. It, it's, uh, so. it, it, it was quite um the the topical song when it came out for sure yeah yeah um so i i want to thank you for for taking some time to talk with me today i think uh if anybody out there is listening and gets the chance to to see you live definitely that's that's uh something that would be a great thing to do i'm hoping i get to see you out on the road soon um everybody listening should definitely check out your new record stardust and satellites when it comes out on february 18th steve thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today man Thank you. This was so fun talking to you. I had a blast. Awesome. Well, take care and stay safe out there. Okay. Take care. All right. See you. Well, when I went back to your house again, I gave it a real good inspection. I must admit, I fell in love with your record collection. There wasn't one that no, nothing you could waste. I gotta tell you, babe, you got spectacular taste. It was Christmas time, we were walking slow And the snow was starting to fall Went back inside another mistletoe And I kissed you in the hall And the choirs of angels are singing the songs A little bit out of tune So we put on some Wood Brothers And slow dance to the light of the moon Let's stay together Like birds of a feather the end of this episode of the jam Base podcast our many thanks as always to all of you out there for listening thanks also to steve poltz for taking some time to chat with me be sure to check out steve's excellent new album stardust and satellites wherever you find good music thanks to this episode's sponsor the 14th annual delfest music festival which takes place in cumberland maryland over memorial day weekend thanks also to jake alexander for helping produce the episode we'll be back next week so in the meantime stay safe out there and go see live music